We're going to do a little quiz. Now, don't worry. You're not going to be kicked out of here if you get anything wrong, okay? But I'm sort of curious, true or false, three, three questions coming your way. Let's see how you do with this quiz, okay? True or false? The fruit Adam and Eve ate in the garden was an apple. Now, you don't have to say it out, you don't have to say it out loud. Just, in, you know, I know some of you are ready to do that. You can, I don't care. Go for it. I don't care. The answer is false. No specific fruit was ever really mentioned, right? Okay, here's the second question. Three wise men visited Jesus after he was born. True or false? False. We know it was three gifts. We were never told how many exact number there were the wise men. And by the way, it wasn't right after he was born. It was actually a little bit later down the road in the life of Jesus. Third question. Money is the root of all evil. Oh, that is definitely not true. Uh, false. It's like, wait a minute. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Now, here's the thing. These three questions are one of many that a lot of people have, they thought the answer was true. Why is that? How, how did we know the answers to these questions? How did, how did you come up with it? Was it popular opinion, things you heard? Because a lot of times these are the things that sort of get circulated, conversation, social media, whatever it may be, and we think, well, that was a true answer. No, it's false, but we've been led to believe that it is true. Understand that? Now, let me, let me give you another one here. Here's another one. True or false? God is real. His words are truth. Absolutely true. So let's take the question mark off. Let's go ahead and put an exclamation point. It is true. And here's the thing. My foundation for my life, my faith is built on this. I believe in the existence of God in which he reveals himself to mankind. And if you look through history, how has God revealed himself? He has revealed himself through an audible voice. He has revealed himself in creation. He revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. He revealed himself in his Holy Spirit. He revealed himself in the written word, the Bible, his words. Now, I've never heard the audible voice of God, and I've never met Jesus face to face. But I have, I have seen the evidence of God. I have read his written word. I have seen his Holy Spirit work in my life. All those things that I just mentioned that I've seen that show me that I believe God is real, the most frequent one that often backs up my belief is his word, his spoken word. It is in his word written form, that I have built my foundation. So can I trust it? Yes. And last week I said we're going to talk about how we know we can trust God's word. However, I needed to make a slight detour, and I'll get to that in a second. Chad Ragsdale, uh, and he spoke a message one time called What is Truth? He said uh, truth can be categorized into three areas. First of all, we have objective truth. Objective truth is no matter what the opinion is, it is true. For instance, what comes up must... Come down. That's true. No matter what. I, whatever I throw up in the air, it's going to come down. That, that applies to everybody. That's objective truth. Then we have subjective truth. Subjective truth is what is true for me, but may not be true for you. For instance, blueberry waffle cone ice cream is one of the best flavors out there. Okay? Now some of you are going to say false. Okay? Because you've got a different flavor. So what's true for me may not be true for you. That's subjective truth. Then we have situational truth. Situational truth is what is true for me and maybe for all of us can be true in this area, but maybe not true over here. For instance, driving on the right side of the road, that is good stuff, right? We're going to do that. Sounds like good truth. Unless there's a sinkhole or in a foreign country, then you maybe want to pick the other side of the road, right? So it might be true situationally. Now, with those three truths, basically what I'm saying is 
it's true for me, or I'm sorry, it's true for everybody, it's true for me, or it's true in certain situations. Here's the problem. People have taken God's word and they have taken what is we call objective truth, which is truth for all, and they say, no, it's subjective truth. It might be truth for you, but not truth for me. Or some of it's true, or in certain situations it's true. That's what's going on in this world. In the book of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus pulled his disciples away, aside and said, who do you say I am? Now he's looking for the answer. What are they going to come up with? They basically said this, Jesus is Lord. Very good. Unfortunately, that, back it up, fortunately, that is objective truth. Unfortunately, people see it as subjective truth or maybe situational truth. Either Jesus is Lord for all, or Jesus is Lord just for me, or Jesus is Lord sometimes. Which one is it? Some people have said, and I heard another gentleman say he compared Jesus to that of being a smoker. In this sense, in saying this, um, smoking may be legal, but it's only in designated areas. So with Jesus, you can be, go ahead and believe that Jesus is real, but only at church or at your home. But you can't claim that Jesus is real at workplace or in your school or at certain other places. Does that make sense? That's what they've sort of done with an example. Let me give you another example. Uh, maybe you have or have not seen uh, the Michelangelo statue of David. Um, it is a rather large, impressive, 17-foot-tall uh, statue, very impressive, priceless work of art, okay? But here's the thing. Let's, let's imagine you just inherited this, this work of art, okay? That work of art is going to go to your house. Where are you going to put it? So for me, in my, my situation, my house, first of all, I'm sitting there going, well, it's too big to fit in the basement, rather tall. Living room, I really don't want that to be the first thing people see when they walk into my house, and I don't think it would fit anyway. And the bedroom or dining room, not appropriate. If you've seen the full statue of David, you'll understand that, okay? Um, where am I going to put this huge statue? Some of you like Google it now. Don't, okay? Um, but where do I store this? Nowhere does it fit in or fit in my house. So the solution may be this. I'm just going to build a new house. And I'm going to build a room that will actually accommodate this statue. I mean, I'm going to build my, my house around this statue is basically what I'm going to do. Okay? Now let's equate that to our faith. When you place your faith in the God of this universe and you believe this is truth, here's the question. How do you take this and how does that, a lot of us are like, well, how does this fit into my life? How does that fit into my life? And here's the way it needs to work. You need to build your life Upon this. This is your foundation. Your life gets built around this and upon this. It isn't, here's my life, and let's see if it can fit into my work today. Let's see if it can fit into my relationship issue. Let's see if it can fit into my finances today. It's not, not the way it works. Now, if you remember last week, I mentioned about the foundation of our faith compared to that of a house. We talked about the house out in, in Yellowstone that got swept away by the river because it had a, a faulty foundation and just got swept away. Here, here again, we look at this as the lower part of the house being the foundation and the upper part of the house being maybe our, our opinions, okay? What, pro, what the thing in here is Jesus is saying is Jesus says, I am Lord, that's foundation. My word is truth, that's foundation. Everything else gets built up upon that. Without that firm foundation, everything is faulty, falls apart. We build our life upon faith. Not trying to make it fit into our life. It is our life. Again, 
I gotta start off the sermon this way to help you understand what truth is and what we believe as Christians, at least the way we should believe as Christians about truth, okay? Now, if you were to open your Bibles and, and Psalm 111, or you might wanna mark it down, well, I'm gonna bring up different scriptures today. I'm eventually gonna end up in Psalm 139 for a little bit. But in Psalm 111, you discover some incredible things about God and God's word. And he's com- in there we find it's commanded we are to meet with godly people. We're supposed to be doing this this morning, okay? And we're to give thanks, which we were doing that this morning. And we're to consider and meditate on God's good deeds, which we just saying about how good he is, right? We're to ponder the goodness of God, and God's righteousness never fails. We fail at times. We mess up, right? He never fails. God's way of reconciling us back to him is perfect because God is full of grace and God is full of mercy, He gives us what we do not deserve, and he does not give us what we do deserve. God always remembers his covenant. We forget things all the time. God never forgets his covenant with us. We forget the, oh, I I should have done that with church or the Lord. God's like, I never forget about my stuff with you, right? All he does is just and good. And we read in scriptures as his commands are trustworthy and they're true. Everything he says and does is to be obeyed faithfully. That's what we read in This psalm, Psalm 111. If it were not true, why would he ransom his life for us? If this was not true, why would he go to the cross for us? I mean, that's crazy. To to sacrifice your son, to sacrifice your life based off of a lie? No. Look at verse 10. It's up on the screen. The fear of the Lord is foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commands will grow in wisdom. That's the promise. The word of God is to be meditated upon. It never fails. It is just. It is good. It is trustworthy because it is from God. We have many authors, as you read through the Bible, like, well, a lot of times you'll hear me say this, you'll hear others say it, um, and Dave often talks about this, but he goes, well, Paul said, Mark said, and, and Dave's like, no, God said it. They just penned it down. So when you open up the Bible, it isn't just what Mark or John or Peter said. It's what God said. It's God's word. Now, when I look about this, this this whole thing then, God has given me his word to meditate, to work on it, to live off it, to build my foundation. My life is built upon it. My, my, My faith is built upon it. Everything around gets built up off of the ground of this. Everybody understand this? So when we get to certain topics and issues that we face in the world today, we got to make sure this is foundation before we can discuss what's going on up here on the surface. Okay? So the subject that I'm getting to today was not what I planned to preach on because I want to talk about the issue of abortion and what's going on in this world right now. Where do we stand as a Christian foundationally in this matter? Here's the thing. We all want to be loving towards one another. And we don't want to be violent and angry. Where do we stand? I mean, there was a great deal inside of me that said, don't preach on it, don't preach on it. You did this three years ago. That's good enough. You don't need to resurface it and bring it back up again and talk about it. But here's here's the thing. It seemed like every news outlet, my my emails, I mean, for the last 40 hours, everything that popped up was Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade. It just came over and over and over. It's like, God, do I need to switch gears here? Am I supposed to preach on something else? And it's like, just show me. And it's like, I couldn't ignore it. Because the church is going to be greatly involved in how we react, the words we use, the things we post, the conversations we have as a church 
matters. So do we as a church just sort of step back and go with the flow? Or do we as God's people engage and be ready to understand where we should be standing? Subjectively, objectively, or situationally, which one is it? How are we, how are we going to stand on the truth? <clears throat> when I look at the whole topic of Roe v. Wade, um, and I, I believe it's, it's not so much about um, maybe the babies or women's health or personal rights. I, I think this begins with foundational truth. But again, that God is real. His words are truth. Jesus, our Lord. That's foundation. See, God is creator. The word of God is truth. It's life-changing. It's, it's trustworthy. It gives us an understanding and a firm foundation so that when the storms of life come and the topics that hit us every day and sort of batter against us, we're able to stand strong and firm because our foundation is firm. John chapter 3 in the Bible, we learn that New life in Jesus Christ, eternal life, begins the moment we're born again spiritually. That means the moment that we admit we're sinners, the moment we confess to God and we ask him to forgive us of our sins, a holy God forgives us of our sins. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved. He is our Savior. Oh, but we're not done. He saves us, but now he must be our Lord. We, we sing that. You are my Savior. You are my Lord, right? But if he's our Lord, that, that means this. He's not just forgiving me. He's giving me direction for my life. He is the king. I am a part of his kingdom. He is Lord. We are, we are his people. We love him. We serve him. We represent his kingdom. If he is our Lord, he is our king, we as people should behave like people that belong to his kingdom. We know when we have new life in Jesus Christ. It's spelled out. Now, here's where things get tricky because the, the conversation going on in the world today is, well, that's okay. You know when you spiritually are born again, but when does actual life begin? Conception or birth? Which one is it? When's, when does life begin? Does it matter? Absolutely it does. It does. Understanding the beginning of life, the value of life, according to God's word, helps us understand why God commands us to love one another, to be kind to one another, and to follow more of his commands. Let's just go to one of the biggest commands, one of the first commands in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not murder. Ooh, Rex, you just didn't step on my toe. You kicked me in the shin. It's God's word. We're not supposed to murder. We're not supposed to extinguish life and life. Go against, that's God's standard. To murder is to go against God's standard. And it's pretty clear, no long definitions, black and white in the Bible. For God, life matters. Life is precious. You have no right to take it from anybody because he created it. However, today the topic of abortion is such a major issue in our nation. And yet sometimes the church is silent because we don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, Right? We know it's wrong. We just don't want to say it's wrong. We don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Or maybe, maybe we're just not clear on the issue, so we don't know where to stand, so we've just sort of, we've just sort of went with the wind. You know, wherever the wind blows, I, well, that sounds good. doesn't sound harmful to anybody, right? So please listen carefully, church. We need clarity on the issue of life and its value. As a pastor of this church, I stand with God. I stand on God's word. 
and I declare what is true. I cannot be, I cannot be swayed by popular opinion, rude emails, criticism to this church or to myself or any, any hardship that may come just because I decided to preach truth. I must be honest with you. If I were ever to stand before you and preach something that is false, I would expect somebody to say something and then the elders to meet and then maybe they'd get the boot to leave. Because we cannot have that. We have to have truth. I have to protect those who enter the doors. I've been deemed your shepherd. By definition, a pastor is the shepherd of a church, Right? Now, I'm, a lot of you that grew up in a church, maybe your pastor was really good at this, your pastor was really good at that. Well, he, that, my pastor used to make house calls. My pastor used to do hospital visits. This shepherd here doesn't do stuff like maybe your shepherd did. I'm, I'm different. But what I take serious is what happens up here every Sunday morning. Hearing God's word, worshiping God, giving you every opportunity to come and sing and to worship and to praise him and to learn more about him. And I stand before you Humbly saying, and I will mess up. I do not stand before you as a perfect man. I am one who has made mistakes, probably will continue to make mistakes, and I will seek forgiveness of God because I am human like you. But I understand my role and what I'm supposed to do. So regarding abortion, I understand it can be a touchy issue, but we must speak to it. And I understand it can be a personal issue, but our personal issues directly affect each other. Any choice we make, whether it be good or evil, affects the body of Christ. Please understand that. We, we believe, well, it's, it's, it's our life. It's, it's my choice. But your choice always impacts those around you, including the church. In the body of Christ, we realize good decisions or destructive behavior affects the whole body. It may be private, but it still hurts you. And eventually it hurts others as well. And so listen, I'm not condemning and I'm not trying to shame anybody in here who has had an abortion or a relative of yours or somebody you know that's had an abortion. I, I, I'm not here to wiggle my finger at you. That, that's not me. I am not the judge. God is the judge. Neither are you a judge. We've all messed up. Lies. We've cheated. We've, we've committed sexual sins. We've disobeyed our parents. We have, we have pride. And the list goes on and on of all the things that we've done. Not one of us in here is worthy to stand up and judge anybody. We've all sinned. And praise God, Romans 5, 8, praise God, his forgiveness covers it all. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for each and every one of us. I'm not the sin police. It's not my job. It's not yours. God is, is one who forgives us, and we need that. And I'm thankful for that. I'm here to share with you the foundation of God's truth. I want you to know how precious life is, what God says about life, why we should value it just as much as God so I simply ask you to prayerfully open your hearts this morning to this message. And we begin with God's word. So in Psalm 139, if you could turn there. And while you're turning to Psalm 139, I'm going to put a few other scriptures up on the screen. Point out a few things. Again, we, we start with truth. Okay? We start with truth. Objective truth. This is truth for all. Here's the first thing. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Again, you're turning to Psalm 139. Psalm, I'm sorry, Genesis 126 says this. Then God said, let's make human beings in our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Here's the first thing you need to know. We're created in God's image. We are image bearers to God Almighty. You're created in God's image. Here's the second thing. We're given value and we're given purpose. Right away, God said, Adam, here's your job. 
Because God said, I'm giving mankind. You all have a responsibility. I'm going to give you a gift. You have a purpose in life. We all have purpose. Jeremiah 1.5 says this. The Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. See, God knew the prophet Jeremiah way before he was ever conceived. Before conception, God knows you. Isn't that amazing? Give me another verse here. Uh, Psalm 139. Are you there now? Verse 13. Check this out. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was being woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God was doing some knitting in the womb. Can you just imagine, you know, you watch maybe some of the ladies, how they, they crochet and they knit and they, they weave things together, and I don't understand any of that, but I know this, don't mess with them because what they make is pretty good, Right? So as, as you're, you're looking at this, this is what we've discovered. See, when, when, when this was written, we didn't know about cells and tissue. But today, we can look through microscopes, and this is what we learned. When you look through microscopes, you discover that tissues are woven together. Isn't that amazing that thousands of years earlier, God, you weave us together. Oh, I sure do. And they're going to figure this out when they discover what a microscope is. Now we get to see what was said earlier, right? He says, creation is wonderful, and I truly agree. And this, here's the thing about what an abortion is. An abortion is basically reaching in and snatching out what is being woven together before it is completed. You don't mess with the person who's doing the weaving. And that's what that is. Verse 15, the utter seclusion and dark of the womb. You see that? That's a reference to the womb. It was a secret to them. They didn't understand the, the birth canal and the uterine tube and cell fusion and so forth. We obviously know so much more now in medical terms and examinations than they, they did then. But then it was in the other darkness. I don't, know, I don't know what's going on in there. Look what um, is said in Ecclesiastes. Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind, look at this, or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Church, listen very carefully. We are not going to fully understand what's going on in a woman. And some of the men are going, in more ways than one. I, I get you, okay? Physically, <laughs> I wasn't looking for that. But physically speaking, physically speaking, when it comes to having a baby, we can't fully understand all that is going on, even with the best medical terminology today. It is such an amazing thing. It, I did a lot of research a few years ago, more than I ever did in health class or biology, okay? And I relied upon a few, uh, here's one of my resources, Dr. David Menton. Uh, PhD in cell biology in trying to study and understand the function of a woman's body, the uterine tube, the releasing of the egg, fertilization process, so much more. Pages of notes, and then I, I come to a conclusion that this, the birthing process is amazing. Beyond my understanding, beyond anybody's understanding. And, and so you ask this question then, so when does life begin? We, we need to know. When does life begin? I, I, I asked you that earlier. So here's what we'll do. We'll go to the medical schools and ask them for their definition. Not going to the Bible on this one. We'll go to the medical schools. Here's how they define when life begins. I'll put it up on the screen. 
Although life is a continuous process, that's important to note, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend in yocyte. Now, life is a continuous process. There's no start, stop, start again, stop, start. It's a continuous process. That's what life is. When it stops, it's done. Okay? So let's consider a definition now from the Stedman's Medical Dictionary. From the Stedman's Medical Dictionary, this is what conception is then. The art of conceiving or becoming pregnant, fertilization of the oocyte, ovum by a spermatozone to form a viable zygote. Now, that's the fertilized egg. Fertilization and conception are the same thing in this definition. It's important to see. But you know what? That's sort of inconvenient to anybody that wants to sort of end life. Let's say I come up with some kind of contraceptive, some kind of uh, something that can maybe end life within the first nine, ten days of pregnancy. So maybe we ought to change the definition. They did. They changed the definition in 2000. They made a change. As you see, they crossed out a couple big lines there, and they entered and they replaced it with the implantation of the bladocyte and the endometrium. That process that they now threw in there takes up nine to ten days, which will allow for sterilization drugs to kick in and doesn't sound so bad now, right? Do you see, see what happens? We don't like something. We just change the definition so now we can use this. And it's, well, according to the definition, that's when life begins. I went on to learn about the two-cell stage, the bladocyte stage, the making of the placenta, the growth of the baby. I learned that at day seven, the embryo has cells fusing together. Blood vessels are filling the embryo. Blood clotting is not taking place. The placenta surrounds the baby at 40 days. Blood exchange of the baby and the mother taking place on the surface of the placenta. And again, my mind just swirling as I'm learning all this. The one thing that doesn't, the placenta doesn't protect, though, is the passing of alcohol from the mother into the blood of the baby. Which is like, if you choose to do this, understand how that one thing will affect the baby. Mothers who use recreation drugs like cocaine, it's, it gets passed on through the placental barrier. I learned that the baby must make its own red blood cells. And to make hemoglobin, uh, globin, you need iron. But iron doesn't cross the placental barrier. So the baby's going to die. Oh, but here's the miraculous thing. A special protein picks up the iron from the mother's blood, carries it across the placenta. This, these kind of things are amazing and miraculous to me. Now, let me show you a picture of a four-week embryo. Heart is beating, pumping blood, nervous system is developed, spinal cord is growing quicker than the body. On the right side, you have a seven-week-old embryo. It is not called a baby yet, according to definition. Although there's a detectable heartbeat at 18 days, remember, it's seven weeks. At 18 days, there's a heartbeat, brainwave activity at 40 days. Eight weeks, we call it a fetus because the organs are in place, finger, toes, eyes can all be seen, even though that we can recognize right now, that's a baby but we're not going to call it that yet. 12 weeks, fingerprints, nails, facial expressions, fine hair on the face. It's, he swallows, she swallows, responds to touch, grasp, object in the hand, um, sucks the thumb, about four inches tall. You know, when you think of this, it's like, this is amazing, right? Do you remember in Luke chapter 1, verse 44, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary's come to say, I'm I'm, I'm with child. And right away it says, the baby within Elizabeth, that would be John the Baptist, leaped in joy. This is probably what at that stage was leaping was going on. To me, again, amazing. 
At nine months, the baby's in position. The baby's ready to be born. One thing left, delivery. Um, gentlemen, have you ever built a boat in the basement and like, how do I get it out now? <laughs> this is what's going on with the ladies, okay? But again, God does amazing things. He softens up tissue and ligaments around the pelvic bones so that they expand, and then the baby's head just needs to be turned 90 degrees and fits through perfectly. It's amazing how God orchestrates all of this, right? Yet, and again, I think what Solomon, what did Solomon say? And the mystery of how a tiny baby growing in the mother's womb, he is so correct, isn't he? Yeah. Yet knowing there's life from day one, there's life, it's a continuous process. The devil doesn't want us to understand all this because then we would feel bad about breaking God's commands. So what can we do to change things? I mean, you sit there and think, knowing all this, there have been 881,000 babies terminated on a yearly basis. Yearly basis, 881,000. And that precious life is, is just being extinguished. 2004, the Gutenberg Institute, they're part of the Planned Parenthood. Uh, they did a survey, they anonymously surveyed 1,200 uh, post-abortive women from nine different um, clinics across the country. Out of these 1,200, 957 provided a main reason why they had their abortion. I know it's probably too small to read and find in print. But when you look at the numbers, basically what it tells you, if you add things up, 90% of the children that were aborted from those 1,200 women, 957 of them said we did it out of convenience. Convenience. You probably hear, well, it's the mother's health, baby's health, so we better abort. But the majority of them, it's never that way. It's never that way. Statistics show us. And then you say, well, but okay, so really, I mean, how, how drastic is all this? Here's another graph, which you're probably not going to be able to read, fine print. If you look all the way to the left, you got the number shooting up to the top. That's, that's millions, okay? And across the bottom, you have all the major wars and small wars and any war that's ever taken place in the last basically 100 years. And when you look at this graph, you're going to see that those aborted is that tall blue line all the way to the left. Those are the number of babies aborted. Millions. Close to billions. And you look at all the, the numbers of the statistics of those killed in war. Now when you start seeing stats like this and hearing things like this, your emotions get to the point where you're like, I'm going to cry, or I'm going to get angry, or I'm speechless. I don't, know, I don't know what to do, right? So we quickly pick up God's word and say, God, where are you at on all this? Because I know that the devil will take what is true and he'll twist it. He'll say, it's subjective. What's true for you is not true for this person over here. It's situational. In this situation, it's not okay. This situation is okay. Where does truth land us? Again, the devil used all kinds of tactics to make us think this is the right way to go. There's um, a term called eugenics, which is basically being born of good, no, no defects, uh, no disease. The Nazis described it as, as being uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed. Uh, the term became more familiar thanks to Francis Galton. He's a cousin of Charles Darwin. The creed of eugenics is, listen to this very carefully, it's basically based on the idea of evolution. He goes on to say this, eugenics must be introduced into a nas national conscience, like a new religion. It has indeed strong claim to become an orthodox religious tenet for the future. For eugenics cooperates 
with the working of nature by securing that humanity shall be represented by the fittest races. What nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man must do providently, quickly, and kindly. So basically what he is saying, nature has this natural selection where people die out of, if you're not strong enough, you die. Man must introduce that into his way of living. If it has a defect, if it is not strong enough, it needs to be eliminated. Only the strong survive. That's what he is saying. In 1915, Dr. Harry sorry, after delivering a baby with some defects, that baby could have been fixed with the surgery, he said this, there is no doubt that this child would be defective mentally and morally if allowed to live. It might be criminal. Certainly it would be dependent. It would be a burden to itself in society. He let the baby die for shame. He was not charged with murder. Instead of saving lives, they began to destroy lives because of men like this saying, let him die. They could be a burden to society. Eugenists believe in evolution. They believe that man should be treated like animals. Weed out the weak. And so charities who support poor, charities, nonprofits, churches who feed the hungry, help those who are, are struggling. This past winter, we said, uh, where's Heather? We, we had this wonderful idea of there's a lot of people out there with special needs. What can we do to provide Christmas presents for all of them? And then we reached out, right? See, we are hated because of that. This gentleman here, along with many other people, sit there and say, the philanthropists, those who donate, you're part of the problem because the people that you're helping shouldn't be here. Listen very carefully. This gentleman here who is a part of this is not the only one. Margaret Sanger, she's the founder of Planned Parenthood, said this, organized charity itself is a symptom of malignant social disease. Our civilization is bred, is breeding, and is perpetuating constantly, increasing numbers of defective delinquents and dependents. She is saying, church, it's your fault. There's so many people out there with problems physically. If you would just get rid of them before they're born, we wouldn't be here today. That's what she's saying, but she's trying to say it in a kind way to make her sound good. My criticism, therefore, is not directed at the failure of philanthropy, but rather at its success. She doesn't like it that we're helping sick, hurt people, anybody in life that is struggling. You're out of a job. You've lost your job. You have no food. You have no money. She would say, be gone. You're worthless to society. They believe that mankind only has value if you can contribute. If you cannot contribute, you should not be here. That is the thought of Margaret Sanger. She, again, is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, are you going to hear those kind of words in Planned Parenthood today? No, they're going to cover it up because they don't want you to know what is true. Scripture says this, what are mere mortals? That you should think about them or, or the son of man that you should care for him. Yet a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all beings. God created us just a little bit less than the angels, right? He created us as a special and prized creation. We have incredible value. No matter how you turned out, no matter what you're like, no matter what your intelligence is, no matter what you do in society, you have value given to you by the God of this universe. And when you replace God's authority with man's authority, you should expect what you're seeing out there right now. Chaos, darkness, and a lot of pain. As I said, Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, she wanted to decrease the inferior population through birth control and abortion. 
Again, she wants to make sure that babies are not born into inferior situations. Here are her words. If you are a delinquent, defective, dependent, insane, feeble-minded, illiterate, you should be sterilized so no one more of you will be born. That's horrific, isn't it? She wanted this widespread support and be done by the government. By the way, the government does support it, and that's disappointing. They may provide various good things through their foundation, but understand the foundation of where they stand and the truth of who they are. These are her words. What does God say about that? God says, we're set apart. Human life is unique. It's distinct. It's valuable. Every single person in this room, please understand this, and that you know, that you've ever ran across, has value. Everyone has value. You're his masterpiece. And I don't stand here trying to condemn anybody, but I want to inform you of what is truth. There are those who may be in here, you've had an abortion, or you know somebody that's had an abortion. But let me also share with you, there's many of us in here who have lied, we've cheated, we've acted in sin. And here's the thing, we all, all need the grace of God. God's never surprised or shocked by our choices. He is grieved. And that's why we must seek healing and hope from the only God who can give it to us. And I stand before you as your pastor again in all humbleness and say this, I'm not God. I will not make all the correct decisions in life. I need his grace to be saved just as much as you do. I need his wisdom to know how to live just as much as you do. And I stand before you as a sinful man who's been renewed by Christ through the death of his son and the resurrection. By his blood, I've been renewed. And you as well. And I offer you truth of God's word. My faith is built on the foundation of what I believe God's word says. Of him to be true, I believe it is true. He's the creator of all life. He is the one who determines the value of life. Let me give you an example. Let's say um, you own in your possession a masterpiece, a work of art worth thousands, if not millions. And you come to me and you offer it to me and you say, I have this work of art, this masterpiece, and I'm giving it to you. Would you like it? And I look at it. I don't like how it looks. I don't like the colors. I could care less. Really, I, no, I wouldn't even give you a nickel for it in a garage sale. But you're like, but you know what? Even though you really don't see the value in it, I'm going to give it to you anyway. And you give it to me, and I take it home, and I'm like, where am I going to put this? I have no need for it. I have no value for it. I don't see the worth of it. And so maybe I stick it up in the attic, or I take it out back in my garage and hide it in a dumpster. So I'm done with it. When I think about that for a second, I have to ask, do I get to determine or assign the value of that painting that was given to me. No, I didn't create it. I'm not the original owner. I'm not the original creator. I did not assign value to it, whether I personally liked it or not. I can't assign value to it. It was already assigned. Church, listen very carefully to this. In the same way with human life, I did not create human life. Even though I like to look and say, my three sons that Jenny and I have, Boy, we did a good job in creating three sons. Good, good for us, right? But I did not assign them value. God did. 
He is the creator. Now, can I treat something of great value with lesser value? Yes, we do it all the time. We disrespect one another all the time. We don't treat each other like we should. We don't morally or spiritually have the right, though, listen, we don't morally or spiritually have the right to assign value to something that God has already assigned value to. Every child that's in the womb of a mother has already been assigned value by God. That baby already has value. It's not my authority to say it doesn't. It is, even if it's mine, it's already been assigned value. And I can't change that. Worship team, would you come forward, please? Why share all this? It's just everywhere I look right now, this is going on in topic in church. Here's the thing again. This is our foundation. You start with the foundation. So when the world comes with top subjects like we just talked about, where do you stand? It, it, it's, here's the thing. Here's, here's God's word. Here's truth. I'm building my house upon it. I'm building my faith upon it. Everything else has got to fit in this direction. Otherwise, if I don't do that, Okay, I heard my friend say this, and I heard my other friend say this about abortion. I heard my friend say this and that, say that. And now, well, God, where do you fit in with all this? That's totally opposite of what we need to do. I want to encourage you. We must be ready to have an answer. And when, I, when I've seen what people have said or heard what people say, and my heart breaks because I'm sitting there saying, but that's not truth. You've based it off of something that is not true. What is truth? Now make your decision. Now, after hearing what you know about God and what he says about you and being a masterpiece and you having value and you're created, now, if you don't like that, then you can go what direction you want. But as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is where we begin. And so as people come to you and they say, hey, I've, I, where do you stand? Where do you stand? You know, remember 1 Peter 3.15? Be ready. Be ready to have an answer. Be ready to defend yourself. And not so much defend yourself. And here's the thing, you don't have to defend God. Do you really think God needs our defense? I think he can defend himself. But as his people, we represent him. And here's how we do it. Let me say this real quick. First Peter 3, 16. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. We're not here to slam somebody over the head with the Bible. We're here to love them. You love them. If people speak against you, then they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Verse 17. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. We don't argue with vengeance or ill will towards people's opinions. Just as that baby in the womb has value, the woman who's holding that baby has value. Respect and love her. Will you change maybe people's thoughts about you? It's, it's not your job. Will they speak evil of you? They might. But here's what we got to stop doing. we got to stop supplying with the, them with the ammunition to fire at us. Give them truth. If they want to hear the truth, so be it. If they want to reject the truth, so be it. But begin with you understanding what truth is. Would you stand, please? Remember, this world is bent on opposing the creator of this universe and his words. The, our opponent does not want us to understand that we have value, that we have life, that we are created with purpose. Understand that. So stand strong, church. Do not be surprised if nobody agrees with you when your opinion or foundation built on God's truth conflicts with them. It's going to happen. Stand firm on truth. Stand strong on truth.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an amazing God. I thank you, Lord, for truth. I thank you for your love. I thank you that you created each of us, Lord, with incredible value. God, we, we humbly stand before you to understand that we make mistakes all the time. We do, each and every one of us. Thank you for your grace to save us, your love to, to save us, and, and for not wanting us to perish in hell, but to have eternal life, to be in your presence. Thank you for that. God, help us to show love to this world. God, it's not just about I want to stand strong and firm and true, but I want to do so in love. I want people to know that they are loved. I want them to know the truth. Give us the right words, Lord. We thank you for your, your words this morning. In the name we pray, amen.